Yeah, yeah, indeed. Yeah, uh, that's well. That's as you say. That's New York for you. And uh, what would it be without the, uh, you know, the sound of breaking glass and uh, you know uncontrollable rage? Absolutely. <laughs> and that breaking glass and uncontrollable rage is a great way to transition anyway. into our conversation. Are you you ready to go, David? You yeah, feel you feel sure. good? Sure. We go, we go no frills and we're, we're gonna have some fun today. So uh, thank you for joining us. Welcome back analysis listeners. I want to welcome into a very special conversation today, an author. So we have an author who has written such book, books as Bellows People and Slow Reading in a Hurried Age. And his most recent book fits the theme of our podcast, Stanley Kubrick an American filmmaker. Thanks for joining us today, Mr. David Mickix. Oh, thanks, Bob. I, uh, I'm very excited about this. Always happy to talk about Kubrick. Absolutely, absolutely. And to bring in our other guest, a common friend of our podcast, my Aunt Julie, Jules Sipes, <laughs> who actually gifted me this book for the Christmas holiday. So, Jules, can you introduce yourself Thank by you, just? Julie. Yeah, there, it's one of your one of I, your many purchases here, David. Thank you so much for including me in this conversation, and I'm going to try to not be too quiet <laughs> during it because I'm absolutely fascinated with this subject. But um, I did gift this book to Bob because he and I both have a passion for film. My passion happens to be the golden age of Hollywood and he happens to be present in the, you know, in the now. And so when he and I discuss things, um, I like to open up more conversation by um, taking in new things and by introducing him to other things. And I thought, Kubrick would be a great place to talk about um, film and he's timeless. And this book, when I read it, I was so thrilled um, to find out that Kubrick wasn't a total psycho. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was like that he's a, he was a family person. And I mean, I could elaborate on that, but um, I, I have some of Kubrick's films in my library and um, they're the ones that bring me the least amount of anxiety. Um, but I just think he's a master and I yeah. thought that the book really captured um, a, a process in him as a person, as a human being. So I was thrilled to give it to him and I'm, you know, I'm so happy to be here. So well, thank you so much, Julie. That's uh, uh, I'm glad you liked the book. And you're absolutely right about Kubrick's personality. Uh, people may have gotten the impression and it's a wrong impression uh, from various news stories that he yeah. was somehow forbidding, remote, uh, some sort of hermit or even, as you put it, a psycho. But right. none of this was uh, none of this was the case. He really was a family man. He uh, he had a number of friends. He liked to be in control of his environment that, as much as possible. Yeah. So that's why he was not in L.A. He did not live in L.A. He disliked the place uh, <laughs> extremely. But uh, he had his estate in, uh, in England near London. 
And, uh, you know, people would, he would invite people over during one of the stories I tell is about the making of Full Metal Jacket. Yeah. And this was one of my great thrills in writing the book. I uh, interviewed Vincent D'Onofrio. So Vincent told me that, uh, that he and Matthew Modine would go over to Kubrick's house every Saturday night and they'd have dinner with Kubrick's family and then Kubrick would show them a movie. You know, he'd show them a film, Amazing. He'd, read, he'd read the reel himself, they'd sit and they'd talk about it. And these guys were, you know, in their early 20s at the time, you know. And so Vincent D'Onofrio told me, well, I just learned so much from Stanley, you know, about movie making, uh, as, as well as having a lot of fun. He had this way about him that your book captures. And I want to do an extra sell for your book for our listeners here, because it's breezy. It's a really nice companion piece because I went back and, and spent some time in, in some of uh, Kubrick's films over the past couple months after reading this. And, and it's a nice companion piece to give you a f extra layers and perspective, but it's, it's not, I'm holding up right now. I know this is radio, not television, but I'm holding up the Brando biography that I read as well earlier last year. And this is just almost 700 pages. A and something. Yours, yours, basically prioritizes some of these stories and in the, the one you just mentioned on full metal jacket is 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 great and and really a, a misunderstood master of his craft but kubrick one of the themes i'm getting from you in your book is that he's this light that draws a lot of these creative people to him and people just want to be in his orbit and a lot of descriptive words i wrote down from some of your chapters here is just warm caring uh, expansive, funny, obviously hugely intelligent, while also mixing in the genius, the control freak, the yeah. absolute intensity that he tried to control his projects. Mm -hmm. But overall, just this incredibly driven person to make a perfect movie. Was that something you were trying to communicate to your readers? Oh, oh, certainly. And, you know, he, uh, as you point out, yes, people found him and he was, you know, funny, warm, generous and so on. And uh, uh, the, the, the point you made about him being kind of light that drew people into his orbit, you know, one case of that is Leon Vitale, who played the character Bullingdon in Barry Lyndon. And after that, Kubrick invited him to be his right-hand man, basically, and to do everything from auditioning actors, uh, uh, to, uh, you know, looking over the prints of all the movies, which Kubrick was very kind of fanatically interested in. Oh, are, these, are these prints, you know, do they look okay, the ones that are going absolutely. out the theaters? So Leon, uh, uh, Leon became Kubrick's right-hand man and quit acting. And, uh, you know, he did that for the next, uh, the next few decades. There's a very fine movie about about him called uh, Film Worker. I actually um, have seen it. Right. We watched it just this week because yeah. of your recommendation in the book. And yes, it's fascinating. Did. It's fascinating. That was a fascinating thing. Yeah, yeah. wonderful. Tony Zierra's uh, movie about Leon Vitale. So, but the other thing is, you know, of course he was a control freak. And, uh, you know, there are a couple of funny lines uh, uh, that communicate that. I think it was... Uh, I think it was Terry Southern who said, uh, he never let so much as a trouser pleat go unsupervised. I love that line. <laughs> so, so, you know, every tiny detail he would be concerned with. He's and, fighting uh, with the owners of studios, the, man, the, the, the manager of a theater house, because they're not using the right projector. He's, he's <laughs> painting the walls in different screenings because it's not, it's not the right look. 
Exactly. And, you know, of course, his mantra was always, it's as easy to do it right as it is to do it wrong. So, you know, the particular case you mentioned is that European theaters did not have the, uh, the, the correct lenses in their projectors, the ones that he wanted. And so he, uh, he told one of his assistants to just drive around to, you know, several hundred theaters, and, you know, buy the lenses and then drive to the theaters and give them the lenses. So, uh, you know, this really made an impact on the industry, I think. People got used to directors, um, you know, at least uh, uh, directors who had the sort of mindset of Kubrick, uh, got used to them really, um, uh, really being concerned with things like that, uh, with the advertising campaign for the movie. Um, you know, there are some funny stories about that as well, where he would be measuring the size of the ads in various newspapers mm -hmm. and say, you know, yeah. they're screwing us. They yeah. said this is supposed to be two millimeters more than, you know, that kind of thing. Or how they were displayed in a blockbuster or at the Warner Brothers. Exactly. Yeah, Warner Brothers. His or, battles with Warner Brothers, right? Yeah. So that this, this drew Warner, uh, you know, his friends at Warner Brothers, uh, you know, who were great patrons of his, you know, people like Terry Semmel, um, were, were uh, you know, they would say, why is Stanley concerned with these things? He should just be making a movie. You know, why should he be, he be concerned with how they're displaying the film in blockbusters? But uh, for Kubrick, it was all, it was all of a piece. You know, he really wanted to, uh, he really wanted to have that control over every aspect of the movie. Uh, that's what I, I think, and that's where your book contextualizes thoughts for me that I've never been able to understand fully in my own thoughts is that I'm always drawn to what does it take to achieve greatness? Whether it was the Whiplash movie with J.K. Simmons and it's like, how do we achieve greatness? Or you know, Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hour concept. But I love to think when I watch a movie that the filmmakers, actors, writers, and especially the director that are making it are trying to make the best piece of art possible. Yeah. I hate kind of the, the cotton candy that comes along in the industry sometimes. And I look at it as an art form. And I know some people come in and they, they look at it as, a, as a, an amusement park ride, but I look at it as art. And, and so when you, when you hear detailed stories of Stanley Kubrick's process to create what he believes to be the, the truest form and to give himself fully to his movie, that, that, and I, I know not every person can do that or go to that length, but I think that's what draws me to his films. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in, indeed. It, it certainly for him, it was an art form and one of which he had to have, you know, control over everything except, you know, the obvious that is the budget and the, um, the, the casting of the major players, you yeah. know, on both of which he had an influence on, but uh, you know, and he, he, uh, he achieved this in the way that very few directors have in, in Hollywood. Um, and in part, it was because his movies were fairly inexpensive. He worked with small crews. And as I said, he had Warner Brothers executives who were, uh, who were behind him. Yeah, the small crew was Leon. You know, he told me, Leon Vitale told me, you know, I, I said, you know, it was, it was tremendous. The, uh, the Blu-ray restoration of Barry Lyndon and, you oh. know, uh, Leon restored this movie. And uh, he said, well, you know, I've seen these movies hundreds of times. 
<laughs> yeah. We've seen them hundreds of times because, you know, the, the Kubrick would want him to go over as many prints as possible to make sure that, you know, the colors were right in each of these prints. So uh, certainly he, he knew the movies backwards and forwards. And, uh, you know, so that mania for detail, it, it you know, well, it's, it's, uh, it, it did drive certain people crazy. But, um, you know, the actors in general, I think, very much enjoyed working with Kubrick and insist that they learned a lot from him. And, uh, you know, I, I think something that isn't in the book is a secondhand story, but I, I like it very much. I, I didn't confirm it with Matthew Modine, but mm -hmm. apparently Matthew Modine said something, something along these lines. He said, well, you know, something happens around take 37. <laughs> Meaning, I mean, Kubrick's point was that Kubrick would say, well, you know, actors don't know their lines. They, they think they know their lines, but they really don't. And then, you know, yeah, when you go through take after take, they've really internalized the lines and something different happens. So, um, so that was one reason for you know, fiendishly demanding so many takes, which was one of his, one of his habits as a director. Yeah, we, we have in past interviewed editors like Paul Hirsch, who had done several films, but Star Wars and Ferris Bueller and things like that. And, and he had mentioned he loved working with Al Pacino because he would give you a lot of variations during between takes versus someone like Randy Quaid that would come and give the same reading every single, he was like, I had 30 different takes, but they all looked identical. <laughs> and it's almost, as an actor, probably when you, when you are expected or, or you start to get in the flow of a production and Kubrick does 40 takes per scene, you start to go, okay, I can start to feel this part a little better. Some of, some of it's already in the can of the way I've been doing it. Maybe I can take this and ingest it and, and take this in another direction, but that's when really the, the scene comes to life, right? Oh yeah, and, and he had a technique, you know, Hitchcock, would, Hitchcock also did this. Hitchcock who, who in, you know, used far fewer takes, uh, he made his movies much more quickly. But um, just, just what Hitchcock did, Kubrick also did. He wouldn't say anything to the actors after a particular take. He wouldn't say, you know, that was great, or I like the way you did this, you know, because then they would, as, as somebody put it, well, Stanley knew that if you said that, oh, that was good, then you'd put it in parentheses and kill it. In other words, uh, you know, the actor here has to be, uh, Kubrick thought, on the one hand, sort of in the dark, about what Kubrick, the director, thought of this particular take, but also the actor is given the freedom to really experiment, as you were saying about Pacino. You know, you mm -hmm. could do this, you could try this, you could try that, and all the while you don't know for sure what what Stanley really thinks about any of these takes. So uh, I think actors did like that. That's really interesting. I want to pivot to a just your opinion and. I, it comes out in the book, but I, you're better at, at explaining it than I might be. But he's got so many different styles of film. The difference between Clockwork Orange and Dr. Strangelove is, is, is pretty wild, or even Barry Lyndon, something like that. To you, what makes a Kubrick movie? What, what would you describe as a Kubrick movie? Oh, that's a great question, Bob. And it's a hard question. And in fact, it was the, when I first came to this project, it was my first question to myself. That is, what draws together all these movies, which, as you say, are starkly different in style at times. And, you know, uh, Clockwork Orange, which was made very cheaply for $2 million, 
and uh, you know also filmed rather quickly, uh, uh, you know, given Kubrick standards, uh, yeah. is so utterly different from the movie that directly preceded it, 2001: The Space Odyssey. You know, in which everything is pristine and perfect and cleanly designed, and you know, the whole thing is. Uh, is is just a beautiful pattern. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, what brings these movies together? And so I do take a stab at this in the book. I think Kubrick is very concerned throughout his movies with rebellion, mm -hmm. you know, frequently with macho revolt. Yes. Uh, whatever throws a wrench in the works and screws things up. Um, he's very concerned with systems of controlling humans and remolding them. Yep. Uh, and people who are stuck in some kind of... Uh, you know, people are stuck in some kind of matrix, um, you know, whether it be the aristocracy in Barry Lyndon or the hotel in The Shining or the, uh, you know, the, the, the basic training in Full Metal Jacket. You know, there are other examples of that. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, I think there are, I, I do, uh, just to wrap this up, I do think there are some key differences among the movies. And I make a case that the final movie, Eyes Wide Shut, does something that the previous movies hadn't done, um, even though Kubrick, several of his movies are about marriage centrally. Yes. Uh, Barry Lyndon and also The Shining, but Eyes Wide Shut really takes it to a different plane. It's a movie about marriage uh, in, with a happy ending, you know, with yeah, a, yeah. An a reconciliation between the couple and right. there's a kind of hopefulness or, or, or freedom at the end of that movie. Yes. So, yeah. You're saying there's no happy ending in The Shining with <laughs> him and <laughs> I guess, you know, Shelley Duvall? Yes. They yeah. do get away, yeah. Uh, and so Danny and uh, Wendy do escape. That's happy, yeah. I loved your take on, and I'd never heard this before, and there's so much fan theory with especially The Shining, and uh, all of his movies are ripe with fanboys like me, we, we get on the chats and, and try to figure out the, the deeper meanings in his movies, but especially The Shining. But I really loved your take that, or, or a take that you referenced, that The Shining might be a construct in Danny's mind. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Can you, yeah, can you elaborate was, a little on I, that thought? Yeah, I was playing around with that idea, and it was just a whim I had, the, the, the sense that, uh, you know, Dan, Danny does seem to be in some ways the most... Uh, well, there are two very contemplative figures in the movie, uh, Jack and Danny. But certainly there's a sense in which Danny is perpetually the observer, the one who's taking everything in, you know, and he is the one who has the capacity for shining, uh, which Jack does not have. His father does not have it. And so couldn't we say, hmm, perhaps let's think of this movie, could we, as a kind of fantasy on the part of the little boy? Uh, you know, imagine mm -hmm. this story, this, you know, this bloodthirsty story. Fairy tale. Um, with his parents, a kind of a fairy tale. Now, I don't, I don't think that that's actually what happens in the movie, uh, just to make it clear. Uh, this is a kind of commentary on, you know, one way we could see the movie. But I don't think, I don't think Kubrick really intended anyone to come out of the theater and say, aha, I think it was all in Danny's head. Um, but, uh, but I think it's fun to, uh, to explore that angle. That, that is part of the fun of these. And with some of the, it's, it's widely documented how Stephen King did not appreciate this adaptation. And a lot of times throughout his career here, he's doing adaptations of work, but really putting some of his observations or, or 
deeper themes into these movies that he's massaging into the, the final product of the film, whether it's him basically rewriting Lolita, but giving the screenwriting credit to someone else so that he doesn't get any backlash from the, the final product of the film potentially. But why do you think he was constantly doing adaptations, but changing kind of the, the, the tone or the rhythm or the themes of the movie so much? Yeah, that, that, well, that's a great question. And there are, uh, you know, there are several different answers uh, stemming from several different cases. And uh, in uh, The Shining, I mean, I, I, do, I do like actually the King novel. It's not my favorite novel of his, but, um, but I do like it. Uh, and Kubrick liked it too. He said that, uh, you know, it does something that most horror novels don't do. It was a real sort of deep dive into the psyche of this character. But the problem is that King's novel is relatively shapeless. You know, that there's all this backstory about the main character and uh, his childhood and his existence in Vermont. And what Kubrick did was turn it around and he created a, 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 an, an enigmatic movie. He created a movie in which, you know, we're really not told all that much about Jack Torrance. Uh, and, uh, you know, you have a sense of mystery there that you don't in the novel, which is full of all this explanation. And that makes it more chaotic. It does, yeah, yeah. indeed. Um, so there's uh, that sense of, well, uh, you know, Kubrick also invented the, uh, the labyrinth at the end of The Shining, you know, it's one of the key aspects of the movie. It's not in the book at all. And as you mentioned, Bob, King uh, groused about the movie adaptation, but, um, but uh, you know, you can't deny that that's a wonderful, uh, uh, a wonderful addition to the story. I think it's an absolute upgrade to the yeah. story. Yeah. I think uh, it's iconic. I mean, Stephen it's no should, word, but yeah. Um, um, and, and uh, you know, but they, uh, the, the other cases, well, with uh, Lolita, it's really a, a question of the, uh, you know, the, the mores at that time, what was allowed in a movie. And, uh, you know, Nabokov's novel couldn't be translated to the screen. Um, the, the, the sex in it couldn't be translated so directly to the screen as, uh, as Kubrick would have wished, I think he said this later that, you know, the movie doesn't really have uh, uh, anything erotic about it. Yeah. Um, but he had to do that. And as you mentioned, he gave the, screen, the screenwriting credit to Nabokov, thinking that people wouldn't then say, oh, you've massacred a classic, you've destroyed a classic, because if Nabokov himself wrote the screenplay, then mm -hmm. you know, that's okay. Some of the other cases, you know, I feel that... Uh, it, it's hard to, I mean, A Clockwork Orange is a good novel. The Short Timers, which is the novel by Gus Hasford, on which Full Metal Jacket was based, is also a very good novel. But the movies are on a different plane. The movies really, uh, you know, the movies really uh, grab you and take over your head in a way that these novels, these two particular novels don't. In watching some of these films, in subsequent watches and, and going through the, the now heightened feeling I have towards women in Hollywood in, in, in terms of just the way that female characters have been portrayed throughout time. This might be a really challenging question for you to ask, but I'm, I'm interested to hear your thoughts at least on it. But as we grow and develop in terms of our senses towards these things, 
sometimes female character, oftentimes female characters in Kubrick movies are are hard to um, watch, I guess I'll say. Do you feel n- new film fans or people that are, are learning about cinema, do you think they'll have a different feeling about Stanley Kubrick as we travel in, in um, evolution here of our understanding and senses towards female and female characters in film? Yeah, well, that's a, it's a really crucial question, I think. And I approach it in the following way. You know, I'm always grateful for, um, first of all, I'm grateful for this great new wave of women directors, you know, which we have now and, and movies about women characters. And of course, in classic Hollywood, there, are, there were many movies, you know, with women at the center. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a great period for that. Uh, Kubrick's movies are not like that. Um, you know, the women have very restricted roles for the most part, with the exception of Eyes Wide Shut, in which Alice Harford, I think, is re- Harford, uh, the wife, is really, you know, the central presence the of the movie. Yeah. Even though, even though uh, 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 her husband, Bill, has much more screen time, you know, I, I really think that she is the, you know, she's the center of the movie in a lot of ways, the most enigmatic the most mysterious, the most interesting character. Um, but in general, in Kubrick's movies, the women are fairly marginal. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that they're not important or not pivotal. You know, it's just that, uh, well, well, like take a case like The Shining, for example, in which I think Wendy, the character played by Shelley Duvall, is, uh, is quite central to the movie. Mm-hmm. And she is the survivor. She is, as, uh, as, as she's described, surprisingly resourceful you know when she yeah yeah. On the head and faces him down and so on so um uh so yeah we have to draw a distinction i think between the uh the importance given to female characters and the amount of space they occupy the amount of time they occupy on screen and uh you know kubrick's uh, in general he wanted to make movies about male environments mm-hmm. you know, war for example and uh, at that time, space travel was a male environment. So um, hoodlum, hoodlum lifestyle. Yeah, exactly. Gang, uh, gangster uh, lifestyle. Yeah. Yeah. So you know his uh, um, his analysis of uh, of masculine violence was something that you know that that dictated really that it, it made it harder for him to to really put a, a female character uh, uh, at the center of those movies. A similar case now, I think, is Scorsese, right? You know, you remember uh, a movie that I adore, The Irishman. There was some criticism of it because uh, uh, because the daughter uh, only appears very briefly in the film, but she's actually a very key presence. Huge piece to his to his journey. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. It's uh, you're you're talking about just the the. Kubrick man, the Kubrick leading man, and, and it comes in, into play through each one of his movies, obviously. And you talk about that's the, 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 the movies he was drawn to or interested in making were from that perspective, and just a lot of emotionally distant men. Mm-hmm. And I think it works really well with some of the parallels you're able to draw to his relationships, especially early on in his career, going through those first two marriages mm-hmm. and how that was reflected in his film work. I, I think that was really well done the way you were able to craft that imagery. 
Oh, thanks. Yes, I, I think that, you know, part of what I tried to do in the book is to, to, uh, to illustrate the influence on Kubrick of particular people, not just of, you know, filmmakers or, um, you know, the, the movie industry. But, and one of those people was his second wife, a woman named Ruth Sabatka, who was a refugee from Vienna and uh, who was a dancer with the New York City Ballet, also a set designer. And she was someone who came from this sort of avant-garde environment of, uh, of Europe, of Central Europe. And uh, so she, I think, was a, a big influence on Stanley. Um, their marriage was uh, extremely turbulent, even Dostoevskian, you know, and I, I talk about several uh, scripts, several uh, 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 scripts that he started writing in this period in the mid 50s when he was married to Ruth. And, you know, there's, there's just these kind of chilling, horrifying visions of bad marriages. So uh, yeah. this was something that he escaped from by the skin of his teeth. And, and she did as well. And um, the, the, the final marriage, though, which lasted 40 years, was a very happy one. And uh, uh, to his wife, uh, Christiane, now his widow, who's a, a marvelous person. And one of my great delights in writing the book was, you know, be, being able to talk to her. And she's such a, a warm and funny and, uh, you know, yeah. incredibly smart person that you can really see what brought them together. Was it through those conversations with some of these people, whether it's Vincent or whether it's his wives or Leon Vitali, that you were able to discover the boxing passion that he had or the frequent way he liked to play chess or cards or his psychological studies, some of these things that you're able to give humanize. us, humanize yeah. him. Was that through those conversations or was it through other forms of research that you were able to find that? Part. I mean, there, there has been a, a, a very good biography of Kubrick by Vincent Lobruto. There's another, there's another biography as well. Um, so some of these details are in there. And, uh, you know, there are a couple of great interviews that he gave, mm -hmm. one with uh, a journalist, uh, Jeremy Bernstein, in the, uh, in the 60s, very long interview in which they talk about chess and they play chess together as well. But uh, uh, yeah, th these, are, th these are parts of what make up Kubrick, this sense of, uh, you know, as a child, he was uh, uh, really on his own, I think thought of himself as on his own. He refused to go to school. He only went to school 60% of the time in first and second grade. So this is something pretty remarkable. And uh, his mother, I think his, his father was rather freaked out by this and continued to worry about Stanley's career right up until, you know, he started making millions of dollars. Yeah. But, uh, but the mother just was concerned, you know, convinced that she had a, a prodigy on her hands. Absolutely. And that he, uh, he should just do he what knew. he wanted to. Yes. That's why I just think that um, his his early relationship with his mother is so um, dear that, it, you know, the what, what we were talking about earlier about the roles of women in films that, you know, from just a person that watches Kubrick films, you're thinking, my God, you know, what what happened to this child to make him continue to do these kind of things? works yeah but um she was so encouraging and i'm sure that 
most of society around her was fighting her on the way she was raising her child. So including her husband. Yes. Yeah. That's the impression I got as well that, you know, these were first generation uh, Jewish immigrants as mother and father. And so, um, you know, you were expected to work hard and succeed. You weren't expected to get, uh, you know, a, a final grade point average of 70. Yeah. And drop out of, you know, stop going to school when you're in the second grade. <laughs> I so mean, was, yeah, Kubrick did not do well <laughs> enough in high school to get into college. I mean, it's a parent's nightmare at that, <laughs> you know, any time, but especially in that time where mm-hmm. it was so essential to really prove yourself. And I found that fascinating. I also find in his early life, his photography and um, he would just go with these things that he was obsessed with. And he'd go to the movies and he'd watch a movie and he'd think, well, I can, you know, I can do better than that. And then he would learn about it and then he would do these things. I just, it's a true testament to his genius and the support of his mom, I think. Mm-hmm. It didn't yeah. hold him back from that, from that journey. You know, just as you say, Julie, he, this is remarkable. He was one of the few big directors, uh, especially these days, to have taught himself, or, you know, but then, of course, too, to have actually taught himself how to make movies. Incredible. You know, mostly, you'd, you know, you'd go to L.A. and you'd, you know, get a job in the film industry and you'd figure out how to become a director that way. But uh, Kubrick, he read a few books and, uh, you know, he talked to a few filmmakers that he knew in New York. and. You know, he raised some money from an uncle for his first short, and that's uh, that's the way he did it. So, um, so yeah, he had a great strength of will. Uh, yeah, Michael Hare, who um, who wrote the great book Dispatches about the Vietnam War, and who was a screenwriter for Kubrick on Full Metal Jacket, Michael Hare said, "You'd have to be Herman Melville to transmit the full strength of Stanley's will." It's and, incredible. <laughs> you know, there is that sense in which he was just unstoppable. Yes. And there, there's his visual quality alone in in his films are so um, yeah. distinctive, and move just artwork without question. And then sound, another part that's just his choices for sound, um, not just as far as. Um, audio of speaking but music particularly or sometimes lack of sound or lack the void of sound in 2001 Mm -hmm. when you hear the uh you hear uh breathing when when uh if you remember the I think everybody remembers this this wonderful movie that when dave is coming to disconnect hal and uh you hear dave's breathing i know oh my gosh it's so it's so brilliant it's so brilliant and like i said it it creates this hyper sense all of your senses are going when you're watching 2001. one line i have highlighted here in the book is watching kubrick watching a kubrick film is like gazing at a mountaintop how could anyone climb that high by Mm -hmm. martin scorsese yeah Mm -hmm. and it's just these filmmakers that are icons to me are looking up at Kubrick, yeah. right? When when Leon Vitale sits there and watches the 2001, he's like, I have to work with that man. I'm going to devote my life to that man. Oh it just, it's just it's just at another level. And it's that, again, it's that detail, that that 
that attention to mastery. And, and I also think something that comes along in the book is the fact that he's not afraid to challenge himself or step outside of his comfort level. I think that's also really important in a filmmaker's journey. How do you feel about that, David? Yeah, it's, it's very important. And it's, it's something unique about Kubrick, I think, that he was willing to. And of course, he had the opportunity to take his time. So, you know, there's seven years, the, the gaps between his movies get longer and longer. Mm-hmm. So there's a gap of seven years between The Shining and Full Metal Jacket. There's a gap of 12 years between Full Metal Jacket and Eyes Wide Shut. And he was unafraid to start thinking about a project, go relatively far with it, and then finally decide, oh, no, I don't want to make that movie. You know, he had an idea for a, a, a Holocaust movie um, it was more than an idea. It was a screenplay. He selected the actors. This was in the 90s. He, uh, you know, he was uh, going full speed ahead, and then he decided he just couldn't make this movie. Uh, I think it was. I would not. I would not have survived through that movie <laughs> after reading yes, your book. That, I would not have survived through that for sure. Yeah, and I think that he had that feeling. I mean, he said this, you know, he said, if I'd made this movie, it, it will kill me, the actors, everyone on it, and the, and the audience, too. So, yeah, and the audience. And <laughs> the audience. So, uh, if it's too intense, if he believes it's too intense for the audience, it was too intense for the audience. Because yeah. some of the places he's pushed me in my life were pretty intense. Yeah. Almost too intense. Yeah. Um, yeah. So anyway, the, the point of that, I think, part of the point is that, uh, uh, you know, it was also because he heard that Spielberg, who was a friend of his, was making Schindler's List and he didn't want to compete. But uh, I'm, I'm bringing this up just because it shows that uh, Kubrick was, he wasn't worried about people saying, you know, where is Stanley Kubrick? There are some directors who make a movie every year. You know, yeah. Fellini was making a movie every year. Yeah. And like, what, what is he doing? And, uh, you know, he had the great strength of will and purpose to just take his time. And, of course, on the movie set, too, I'm chuckling because Eyes Wide Shut was actually the longest continuous shoot in movie history, uh, about 16 months. Right, right. <laughs> you know, it even... couldn't have been quite that long. But, you know, oh, but... Uh, he did take his time. He did take his time. I remember when Eyes Wide Shut was in production, and I think every variety, every paper in LA was thinking, my God, when is this going to happen? Because he had the two top stars in, in, up. engaged yeah. in that film, and and everybody was waiting and waiting and waiting for Eyes Wide Shut. And then, of course, we know that a lot of people didn't get it once it finally was released so um including me i think and and this is uh uh this is extraordinary fact about a couple of kubrick movies i think although some of them of course grab you at first sight but there are others that i think you really have to let sink in and for me at least eyes wide shot was one of those when i first saw it i thought ah it's very sort of slow moving and stagey and uh, stiff somehow. And what is the point really? And that orgy scene is ridiculous. And so, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, but uh, I'm not the only one. I've talked to several people who said, uh, wow, you know, when I first saw it, I really didn't like that. But then coming back now, oh, I've seen it half a dozen times. I've seen it a dozen times. 
Um, actually, I, I was on a, another podcast with a woman, I forget her name now, but she said she had seen Eyes Wide Shut at least 100 times. Oh, wow. It was her pandemic movie. Wow. That is a tough Who place to hang in a pandemic. I mean, it's, I got, you know, I watched Dr. Strangelove during pandemic and I, um, that's fun though. That's a fun hang. And I watched Lolita, but yeah, eyes wide shut. That's heavy, heavy. Uh But at least it wasn't Clockwork Orange, which, yeah. Yeah, I've only seen multiple, he's a multiple movie watcher. I I feel like you have to watch Kubrick films. You you want to watch them, but Clockwork Orange is one I've only visited twice. And I just, it's, it pushed me to a place and it's still burned deep in into yeah. my mind. Yeah. yeah. It's going to be hard to take. And, uh, you know, Kubrick knew, of course, that it would be, that it would be hard to take, that it really, you know, it rouses that, 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 that feeling that makes you so unsettled, you know, simultaneously, uh, kind of unwilling excitement at times. Right. I mean, right. there are murderers and rapists, and what are you doing being somehow excited by this? It's disgusting. And then, you know, you're repelled by it as well. So, I mean, what Kubrick said was that so often in the movies, you have, uh, you know, everything ends in a kind of cheery bloodbath because there's a good guy and a bad guy. And so the bad guy, the good guy kills the bad guy. And, you know, with mm-hmm. great gushing forth of, you know, blood and gore and everybody's happy and you mm-hmm. go home feeling nice, you know, and Clockwork Orange was the opposite of that, right? Yeah. You know, oh my God. Disconcerted by you it. Go home feeling. Exactly. Visiting our worst selves, right? Yeah. Yes. Gonna... Which is, it, it seems that a, a movie, the Holocaust is ripe with all that, evil and good good speaking of bad guys the nazis might be the ultimate bad guy i mean indiana jones is still fighting nazis and you know it's just i, I am surprised that given that he was interested in that that he, he didn't go there or couldn't find a different uh piece to adapt or write that that never happened that, that is a little surprising right. to me yeah mm-hmm. and also just his relationship with spielberg because they're two completely different filmmakers Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, one is one is completely going for a, an audience experience that the other one is not. And so the fact that they constantly communicated and collaborated was interesting to me as well. Yeah, it is. It's, it's an interesting relationship. And I agree with you. They are so, so different. And, uh, you know, there's also cases, fascinating cases where I think Spielberg is uh, is echoing Kubrick, for example, in uh, in uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. You know, which okay. takes after yeah. takes oh. after two thousand one in certain ways. That's a really good point but, that I've uh, never uh, thought about. Yeah, but uh, of course, Kubrick. Uh, another thing he was doing in the nineties is he was developing the movie uh, AI, which became a Spielberg movie, and mm-hmm. which, which he handed over to Spielberg in part because uh, he felt that the CGI effects that would be necessary for this movie um, hadn't been had sufficiently advanced so far and that, you know, he trusted it to Spielberg's hands because he knew Spielberg would know how to do it. But when you see that movie, you know, it's an in, it's a fascinating combination of Spielberg and Kubrick. It really is. And, uh, you know, you have, uh, you have uh, this focus on the boy and, you know, Spielberg, just like Kubrick's are frequently centered on, you know, young people on, you know, this figure of the boy, like in, uh, in uh, The Shining, you have Danny. Yeah. Um, 
So you have that, and then you have, uh, there is also a kind of reflection on the Holocaust in AI, um, the scene in which uh, you have this, uh, this crowd that's rioting and you know, tearing apart these uh, mechas, the, the robots, who are regarded as you know, non-human and therefore you know, you oh, can just okay. go I yeah. okay. so it's a sort of, you know, mass scene of mass death. At least this is the way, I mean, Kubrick himself mentioned that he thought this was related to the Holocaust in some way, that scene. But, um, but yeah, I, I like that movie very much. And it's, uh, it's sort of, in a way, it's a Kubrick movie as seen by Spielberg. I haven't watched it in a while. I'm going to have to go and circle back and plug back into it again. I remember Haley Joe Osment. Oh yeah, um, but uh, Nicole Kidman, the mother. Uh, no, who is the mother? It's it's not Nicole Kidman, and now, yes, um, but uh, she's marvelous, and it it ends. It's also about a mother and a son. Yes, yes, heartbreaking. It's um, very heartbreaking. Yeah. Um, do do you, as far as from reading the book, he was very obviously regarded by um, fellow directors. Did he have relationships? I mean, other than Spielberg, can you name other directors that he would consult with or, uh, you know, talk to about their work or admired while he was working? Yeah, that, that's interesting. I mean, uh, the I think the filmmakers he felt closest to were Spielberg and Woody Allen. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was friends as well with John Milius. He... Uh, okay was friends a little bit with John Borman. Uh, he would uh, he would talk to Fellini from time to time. Wow. These yeah. are very funny conversations. <laughs> because they had an interpreter and then, uh, you, you know, uh, I mean, uh, Kubrick would be very, ner- get very nervous about, you know, uh, I'm not gonna tell you what I'm working on. I'm gonna, so, you know, there's yeah, yeah. thing about you know, sort of <laughs> each of them trying to ferret out what, what the other They're one was. Circling each other for point. intel. <laughs> exactly. Um, but yeah, so he did, uh, you know, he did have those friendships, but I think Spielberg was the main one. You okay. know, uh, Kubrick would spend hours on the phone with, uh, with certain people. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, Michael Hare was one of them and, uh, and Spielberg at times. And, uh, the I love that he was just chatting on the phone all the time. That's one of my favorite yeah, parts he of the was book. Just is talking... just always talking on the phone with, for a biographer i mean biographers love people who write letters you know for obvious reasons yeah right. there are no recordings of these phone calls you know we just have a few people like michael hare have, have talked about some of the uh conversations they had with kubrick but um but yeah so you have to imagine this be a fly on the wall for those yeah. even in his earlier earlier work even his film noir is so incredibly powerful. Did he enjoy that part, the film noir parts of his career, or do you think he was just kind of wanting to dabble in all the different types of, how did he get into doing that first part with film noir? Yeah, that's a great question. There's already something noirish about uh, the, the short that he made in 1950 called Day of the Fight, which is about a boxer. um, uh, And it's a boxer with a twin brother, an identical twin brother who's his manager. And so, you know, it has a real noir feel and it's a 
it's uh, it still it still holds up. I think that film. Yeah, that's. Um, I think other you know other directors have cited that early early work of his. I mean, yeah. it's it's um, it, it's just fascinating to see how his visuals um, they continue to be so um. Define, defining, oh. I, I can't think of the words to describe. Well, and then that orbit we were talking about at the top of our conversation, he's pulling along some of these actors that come back and you see them mm-hmm. again in Strange Love, or you see them again in different places, or you see them at the bartender at, at the Outlook Hotel. And it's just, these people get caught up. It's almost, my, my modern references could be the way Wes Anderson kind of creates a, a little pack of people that he likes to, to reuse uh, in that space as well, right? Oh yeah, very yeah. He had his uh, he had his troop. Uh, by the way, I just looked it up. Francis O'Connor is Francis O'Connor. Oh, okay. Yeah, she's wonderful. But yeah, yeah people like Joe Joe Turkel or Joe Turkel. I'm not sure. Uh, Joe Turkel, I suppose, uh, who appears as late as uh, as late as uh, The Shining. He's the the bartender, mm-hmm. Lloyd the bartender in The Shining. Love Lloyd. Uh, but he, he appeared in the mid-50s. Yeah. In Paths of Glory. Yeah. yeah. Has a wonderful role in Paths of Glory. So, uh, yeah, there is a there is a, a troupe of actors, although the, the leading man, uh, you know, Sterling Hayden, of course, appears yeah. in both The Killing and then wonderfully in Dr. Strangelove. Yeah. Peter, Peter Sellers is in both. Peter Lolita. Sellers is Lolita and Strangelove. Yeah. And Peter Sellers, I mean, you talk about a director that is um, reputation for control, and I'm thinking, oh my God, casting Peter Sellers, you talk about not having control over <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't even know how he reigned that force in. Mm-hmm. Or just made him do a character twice. It's, I don't want him to have a cold this time. Let's reshoot this whole character. <laughs> right, right. Well, All that improv. I mean, he, he loves Seller's improvisations in, in both those movies. But what Kubrick would do is that, you know, uh, he'd, he'd shoot the scene in which, uh, in which Seller's was improvising. He shot everything, by the way. He used a lot of film. There was, there, there was no rehearsals without the camera running. So, you know, you'd film the scene, uh, Sellers would be improvising some great shtick, and then they'd write it down and do it again the next day. And yeah. they would do it, and Sellers They would, would script it. it. The, yeah, same with, script the same it. with Lee uh, Ermey in um, Full Metal Jacket, yeah, exactly. where he would do his Full speak, mm-hmm. and then they would go, okay, and he wanted to get it to where it was at least precise, right? Right, right, so you could really think about, you know, uh, exactly what that was, and what parts worked, and what part, parts didn't work so well. And uh, and Sellers was very happy to do it this way, uh, but yeah, he uh, Kubrick really uh, really got a, a bang out of, of Peter Sellers. And, I think, and yeah, I mean much. clearly he's so brilliant in both yeah. Strange Love and Lolita. Um, what about his relationship with Kirk Douglas when he left to go to England? Did he retain his relationship with him after or? There was not much of a relationship left, although, uh, you know, Douglas, uh, uh, Douglas released Kubrick from a contract. There, there, uh, Kubrick had agreed to do a, to three pictures with Kirk Douglas, with Kirk right. Douglas's production company. And when the Lolita property came along, um, uh, Kirk Douglas just said, well, you know, Stanley's not going to be able to really actually make a movie out of this. It's too 
scandalous, you know, it'll never work. So he can go and do it, you know. Yeah. I don't See care. The, I don't care about the contract. Uh, so in in that sense, things ended well, but there was some, um, you know, there was some tension, and the tension stemmed from uh, the movie Spartacus. Now, Kirk Douglas was in Paths of Glory, and that was a um, you know, that was a big step forward for Kubrick and Hollywood, uh, 1957. And, uh, so, um, he was very lucky that, that Kirk Douglas loved that script, wanted to make that movie. And it was a very, it was a very good movie. It, oh, yes. it sort of, um, um, you know, not a big success financially, but the next movie was a huge financial success and that's Spartacus 1960. So Kirk Douglas called in, uh, and called in uh, Kubrick as the director because he wasn't getting along with Anthony Mann, the previous director on Spartacus. Uh, Anthony Mann had said something to Kirk uh, to this effect. He said, well, you know, Kirk, you can't play Spartacus as a Neanderthal. Um, oh, yeah. And so that, that was it. <laughs> like, There's a little bit of ego swinging there. Yeah, that absolutely. Probably was a clash. But there was, you know, what Kubrick said, Kubrick did not like the script for Spartacus. And it was the one movie where, you know, he did not have full control. And so Stanley said, well, you know, I kept telling Kirk that, that this was stupid and that was stupid. And then Kirk would say, yes, yeah, Stanley, you're right. But then he didn't take anything out. You know, he didn't change anything. Uh -huh. And so, um, you know, he was, uh, there was friction of that kind too on uh, on Spartacus. So I think it was a mutual decision that you know to, to that collaborated and way. it's we're gonna go this way. Before we get out of here, David, I would be remiss if I did not ask everyone's got their favorite Stanley Kubrick movie. Mine happens to be Full Metal Jacket. I I just really the moments where you could see Joker in his pain and wanting to help a private pile and just will you just help yourself and th that journey but also private piles pain and in, in when joker um joins the rest of the group and, and no longer defends him and, and the whole top half of that movie especially to me is has always been just uh something i think about a lot uh, so full, full metal jacket for me i know a, a friend of our podcast that comes on a lot uh, his all-time favorite movie is 2001 what's your favorite stanley kubrick movie that's uh, a very good question. And I, I sort of go back and forth between, uh, between 2001, you know, which for many years was my absolute favorite, um, you know, one of my one or two uh, favorite movies in the world. And uh, The Shining, I in increasingly find myself drawn into The Shining. And, uh, you know, I've taught The Shining a couple times. I've also taught Full Metal Jacket and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm always fascinated by that film and, you know, that final scene, uh, the final couple scenes of the movie uh, with Joker and the Vietnamese sniper. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. like, you know, you can think about that forever. And, Absolutely. Uh, yeah. and, uh, it's, it's real. But yeah, The Shining, I think for me at the moment, seems to me uh, the, 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 the central movie for me. I'm not sure why. And maybe I don't want to think too much about it. Right. right. <laughs> yeah. And it's when you revisit it at different ages, it means it takes on different, yeah. different um, significance too. I think. It really does. Yeah, yeah, it really does. And uh, 
you know, also I remember seeing these films when they came out, some of them. Me I too. One a couple of years after it came out, that was 2001, yeah. but the others, uh, Clockwork, I was too young to be allowed to see when it came out. Me too. But and I, I saw The Shining in the theater, and I'm telling you, there's no I, other way to see that, that yeah, film. I have yet to see it in the theater, but we have a theater here in Chicago called The Music Box that plays it around Halloween, and I need to, ch- I mean, obviously COVID uh, right now, but I need to be uh, able to see it, because we, I know we've gone to 2001 before there and mm-hmm. seen that on the big screen. So um, yeah, so it's, it's like, the, seeing it the proper way as well. Right. Kubrick would come in and make us paint the walls before we saw <laughs> yeah. Knocking on the projectionist yeah. door. The right. ghost of Kubrick yeah. is here. We have to get our painting scrubs on. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very interesting hang. A lot of, a lot of um, themes to unpack per movie. And uh, just a, it's great that the book is, again, a, a great companion piece little theories here and there yeah. uh, great to, yeah. to get a, a better understanding of the man himself uh, and also you don't need to commit to 900 pages to do so like, so like marlon brando yeah, yeah. <laughs> i i was it was such a wonderful work of um of human i just think of yeah. the human being just i the yeah. and what does it take to to master something yeah. and, and the, the burning yeah. desire Mm-hmm. some of my main takeaways there so mm-hmm. wonderful yeah thanks so much guys yeah. absolutely yeah. looking thank forward you. to your next books it's thrilling thank you whatever so that much. will be i'm still up in the air but yeah. uh, billy wilder <laughs> yeah jules oh, says God. billy wilder i say woody allen you can t- woody take allen. Him there. we'll see um <laughs> billy wilder is being written about in the same series by a good friend of mine named noah eisenberg who wrote oh. a great book about casablanca Oh my gosh, I'm going to have to check out the book on Cousin there Monica. We go. I'm really excited about Billy Wilder. He's yeah. Yeah, uh, he'll write a great book about, but if he weren't doing it, I would be doing it. I really, yeah, I honestly, that would have, that would, oh, it's such, he's such an incredible creator. I just love him. Mm-hmm. So great. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Thank you, David, for your time, for your work on this book. It's been a pleasure to talk to you and been a pleasure to read. Everybody that's listening, make sure you pick up Stanley Krubick, American Filmmaker by David Mickix. David, where can they find it? Amazon, Audible, where are we looking? Uh, both of those places and uh, as well, whatever, uh, whatever your favorite place is to buy books. Uh, yeah. Stanley Kubrick, American Filmmaker. Bring some sanitizer on down to your local borders and <laughs> pick up this book as well. So it's in the Yale Jewish Live series, so Yale University Press. Absolutely. And go Cougars. Yes. Indeed. <laughs> thank you guys. Thank Bye. Thank you so much. Take Bye. care. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Julie. Thanks, Bob. Bye.